you'll stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. Oh, excuse me. It's longer than that. Sorry, I had it. So it's going to be uh, Jeremiah 29. It's going to be verses 1 through 14. We're going to read 1 um, through 14. Uh, so, again, starting uh, in Jeremiah 29, starting at verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Zaphon, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I am set into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And Josh, if you'll come back up, and I'll pray with you. Holy Father, Lord, um, we are so grateful to be your church um, here in Jefferson City. Um, I pray for Josh today as he shares um, this important message, that he shares your word with us. Um, let our uh, minds and our hearts um, be fully open and fully empowered by you. Um, to hear and apply what you have for us today. And we love you and we praise you in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. One of the nice things about living in mid-Missouri is that we are really right between more or less two major airports, right? Um, we have St. Louis Airport to our east and we have the Kansas City Airport to our west. And I had a buddy of mine um, uh, who... He was recently on a trip. This was actually maybe about a year ago. He was recently on a trip, and he had a good friend of his um, that we both know who was supposed to pick him up. And, and it was great, you know. You, like, if you ask a friend to pick you up from the airport, you know, and you're, you're flying to Columbia, no big deal. If you ask a friend to pick you up from an airport at St. Louis or Kansas City, you know they're a real friend because they have to invest four-plus hours in getting there. So this was a real friend. 
this guy was going to pick up my buddy, and uh, he, he flies in to St. Louis, and he lands, and uh, his buddy, you know, he was texting him right as he's landing. You know how you start to get reception as you start to get on that runway, right? And you, everybody's pulling out their phones. So he starts texting his buddy, and he's like, hey, um, uh, FYI, I just landed. And his buddy from his car is like, no problem. I'm right outside. You already know, don't you? He was right outside the Kansas City airport. And so my buddy, my friend, had to take uh, like Moex or something and drive all the way into Columbia, drop whatever it is, like, you know, $70,000 to drive into Columbia, whatever Moex charges. And uh, my other buddy had to just drive on home with no additional passenger and it wasted four hours. And it did not ruin their friendship, but you can clearly see something in this story is that if you don't know where you're going, you're going to end up in the wrong place, right? If you don't, it's not a very impressive illustration here, but if you don't know where you're going, you're going to end up in the wrong place. And today's sermon, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and we've been studying in context, verse by verse, what God intends us to know from the letter to the Ephesians. Today, we're taking a quick break, and as we really kick off a new year, a new fall, um, we're going to, we want to always remind ourselves, what is the vision of our church? Where are we going? What's the, what's the direction we're heading? Because if we don't know that, we're not really going to get there, are we? It doesn't really make sense. We talk about things like gospel and community and mission, and I don't doubt that God will use this, those things um, to affect us. But if we don't understand how those all factor into where we're going, if we don't have a clear vision for where we're headed, we're not going to get there, and certainly not very fast. And so today's sermon, um, as we're going to look at the book of Jeremiah, is all about where are we going. It's all about the vision of Chorus. And we derive that from passages like this. And if there's one thing I want you to grasp as we study today is that we as a church are called to be a blessing. We are called to be a blessing. We're going to pray and then we're going to jump right into the book of Jeremiah into chapter 29 today. God, as we study your word this morning, help it make sense to us. Um, if it's unfamiliar, clarify it for us. Um, help us understand where you're calling us to be and help us even begin to imagine and, 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 um, and dream about how we fit into the vision you have for the church here in Jeff City. And we pray that in your name. Amen. I want to give you a little bit of context of Jeremiah, okay? Jeremiah is one of the prophets. Um, if you look at your, most of the time we spend studying the New Testament. And so the Old Testament is this book of scripture. It's actually the majority of our Bible. Um, this was the Jewish scriptures, okay? And it's divvied up into different things. You have narratives, you have poetry, that'd be like Psalms and Proverbs. That we call that wisdom literature. There's other things in there, but one of the main portions of the Old Testament is the prophets. And so we have Jeremiah, who is one of the major prophets. And he was a prophet during the time when Jerusalem was invaded. Okay, and so it was a very rough time. Um, they were invaded by Nebuchadnezzar, if you've never heard of him, and he was from Babylon. The, the people of God, the Jewish people, were constantly rebelling against God. They were serving false gods. They called that idolatry. And God allowed them to be punished. And the form of punishment, what it looked like, was Nebuchadnezzar coming in from Babylon to Jerusalem and conquering the city and then taking some of the people back as prisoners, as hostages, and we call them exiles. They took them back to Babylon. So now you have a small contingent of people in Jerusalem. 
still left, and a large group of Jewish people who were still alive, who survived, now as slaves in Babylon. And Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, and he sends letter, a letter to the Jewish people and the elders and all those who were there, and writes to them to encourage them. So he's writing to a people who've just been displaced very recently from their home. So start to get yourselves in those shoes. Start to imagine what that's like. You've been taken from your home forcefully. And you receive a letter from one of the prophets of God. The voices that have been set aside to speak on God's behalf. And Jeremiah's writing to them, one, if not most importantly, to let them know God has not abandoned them. And God intends to use them. And so one of the first things I want you to see as we look, and we're going to hone in here on verses 4 through 7, but I gave you that full 14 verses for context. But one of the first things I want us to see is that God has called us to the place we are in. God has called us to the place we are in. Look at verse 4 with me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. In this verse, we see that God is the one who put the Jewish people in exile. He's the one who sent them to Babylon. Now, of course, we read earlier in the first three verses that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who came and took the Jews and, and dragged them into Babylon, right? So in a sense, we could say, well, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who put them into exile. He's the one who took the people. But Jeremiah is sharing a different perspective. He's sharing God's perspective. He's saying that God is the one who sent them where they are at. He is the one who allowed the people to be conquered and then to be taken to Babylon. Why is that significant? Because Jeremiah is showing us that God is in control of all situations and all things that happen. He is what theologians will use the word sovereign. He's the king. He's the God of all. He's the Lord of all, right? He's in charge of all. He even uses these words. He's the Lord of hosts, of many, the God of Israel. He is the one who has allowed you to be in this land. Not only allowed you, but sent you. You see, the language he uses there is that I have sent you into exile from Jerusalem. There's something significant in knowing that it's not an accident, that God has purpose in having the people there. Have you, have you guys ever been somewhere you did not want to be? Like in a place you didn't want to be? Maybe in a family you didn't want to be? Uh, maybe in a job you wished you did not have? You're like, just this is horrible. Maybe you're in a city, or you've been in a city that you did not want to be in. Naturally, what is your instinct? Is it to just take care and do your best and, like, really dive in and, and embrace it? Or is it to reject it, to not want to be there, to hate it even? If you're like me, you're probably going to complain, and you're going to look for the quickest way out of that situation. When I first came to Missouri, um, I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to be here. I came here for a one-year job. Um, I thought I was, I was convinced that I was only going to be here for one year. Um, and I, I did not know anyone in the city. There was nothing that appealed to me. And I, I, I moved into Columbia is where I first started in Missouri. I, I had no inclination in me that said, I really want to be here. 
growing up in Los Angeles, I was used to being, you know, near the city or in the city, near the beach, um, anything I wanted. They didn't even have Jamba Juice here, which if you don't know what that is, you're missing out. But they didn't have a lot of the things that meant home to me. And so being in Colombia was just small, and I was like, why do people talk with these accents? It was very peculiar, and I didn't like it. And I lived that way for four years. Every year I was here for the first four years, which was 2006 to about 2010, I lived like I was going to be gone the next year. I believed that. I thought I was going to be gone the next year, and I was making plans always to move. And it wasn't until um, we decided that we were going to stay and be a part of Chorus and, do the, and I was going to do the internship that I realized I'm going to be here longer. I need to start appreciating where I'm at. I need to quit complaining. I need to re also realize God brought me here for some reasons. I started to see the things he was teaching me, the, th the things that maybe I wouldn't have seen about myself had I not gone through a hard four years. I began to understand God brought me here to grow me and that it was not an accident. And I know that sounds really weird, but I really, for some reason, just was not convinced I was supposed to be here, that somehow I had gotten outside of God's plan for my life and, and ended up in Missouri, which I did not even know where this was on a map, but that's not, that's thanks to the LAUSD schools, so. It was important that I understand that it wasn't an accident and that God had purpose for me here. So when we look at the fact that God has sovereignly allowed these Jewish exiles into Babylon, sent them there on purpose, we, we have to see that God intentionally put them there and he has a purpose for them. In other words, it's no accident that they are where they are at geographically. It is no accident that you are where you are at geographically. Whether you were born here or not, whether you want to be here or not, God has brought you here for a purpose. Another reason it's significant that Jeremiah tells the Jews God's the one addressing them when he says, thus saith the Lord, the reason it's significant is this. It means God's not abandoned them. He's still talking to them. He's communicating to them through Jeremiah, meaning he has not abandoned relationship with them. So even though it may feel like they've been sent to the worst possible place, that they're in, uh, you know, basically a captured state, in a hostage state, with a people who do not worship the God they worship, they could feel very abandoned, but they have not been abandoned. And knowing that God is still speaking to them through his prophet should have been very encouraging to them, to know that God was not done with them. And so the rest of our time today is going to be spent on looking what did God intend for them? What was God's purpose for these particular folks? And how does that relate to us? So the first part of God's purpose that I want you to see is that God called the Jewish exiles to plant roots. He called them to plant roots. And that is true for us. God calls us to plant roots where we are at. Look at verses 5 and 6. Right, so thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Jeremiah writes 
and really God writes through Jeremiah to the Jews to tell them, plant roots where you're at, where you're already at. Plan to be there. In fact, plan to be there for generations, namely 70 years. Verse 10 says they were going to be there for 70 years. That's a long time. Has anyone ever planted a garden in here? I've never planted a garden. But I understand that it takes time, right? It's a little more time invested to get an end product that's edible than just driving through the golden arches and asking for something and getting it, right? It takes time. You can do the golden arches anywhere you go when you're traveling, when you're vacationing, when you're visiting, but you can't plant a garden wherever you go. That takes time. Build homes where you're at. Live in them. Take, take wives. It takes time to find a spouse and then have kids, and then more kids, and then let those kids grow up to the point where they can be given away in marriage or take a wife themselves and have kids of their own. That, that all takes a lot of time. And so he's saying invest. Start investing in being there a long time. Plan on it. And specifically, the reason, one of the reasons they had to be told to invest it, their time there was because there were false prophets that were telling them, we're going to be going back home real soon. We're going to be going back home to Jerusalem real soon. So, you know, don't, 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 the natural result is don't invest. But that, those were false prophets. And so Jeremiah tells them these are false prophets. And so reject the idea that you're going to be leaving soon. Start investing. Start planting roots. Start having different expectations of how long you're going to be here. Reject the false prophets. I've seen, um, really for as long as we've been a part of Chorus, um, because it's much, much more of a college town, like its identity in Columbia is, uh, you know, it's a college town, it's MU town. And people there, students often will start coming to the church and they'll, they'll be encouraged by what they see and what they experience and, and the sense of family and the, the word of God spoken to them. And, you know, then we encourage them, hey, join the family, be, be members, right? Become members, just like we saw here with Neela. And the often heard phrase is, I'm not going to be here for very long, so, you know, I don't really want to commit to membership. There's not an investment there. And, of course, they don't really know how long they're going to be there. And four years is still a long time. One year is a long time. And now we look, and I've seen many of those students become married. They started having kids. They've bought their first home. What happened? What changed? They developed an expectation of being in the city longer than they originally had. And so they committed to it. Because buying a home is a commitment. Taking a wife is a commitment. Having kids is a commitment. I think I've seen that somewhat in our Jeff City folks, too. Um, many of the uh, younger folks I've met in this city, really, the first year I was here, I heard this all the time. I'd ask somebody, you know, under 20, um, hey, so, you know, tell me something you like about the city. That was just a common question I'd ask people, and they'd be like, nothing, I can't wait to get out of here. If they were in high school, they were seniors, they're like, I'm going out, I'm getting out of here, I'm going, I'm going to Columbia, I'm going to St. Louis, I'm going anywhere else. 
And there's this sense that there's something bigger and better away, and so they don't really commit to the city. They don't love the city. They don't invest in the city, even at a young age. The temptation to want to be somewhere else is going to be real. Even if you were born here or not, the temptation at times in the city you're in is going to be to want to be somewhere else. So what does it look like for us to plant roots in Jefferson City? How do we apply that principle? I think the first thing is, just like the Jews, we have to see that God has us here intentionally. He has purpose in us being here. If he has purpose in where he puts people, then he definitely has purpose where he has us. And I think secondly, we begin to invest in the the city in a way that does not communicate that we're just trying to get out of here as fast as possible. If you know you're going to be here a year, know that you're going to be here a year. Plant what you can in that year. And those one years can turn into 10 years now for, in my case, right? You begin to change the way you talk about the city. Instead of all the things you don't like about it, you start to communicate, you start to find the things you do appreciate about the city. And you start to say, actually, I really like this and you enjoy it. Folks who want to get out as fast as they can don't care about the mess they leave behind. People who are going to invest and plant roots, they care about the impact of everything they do in the city. To to give you a little illustration, when I was um, living in Columbia, I managed property. I managed managed rental property. I had about uh, seven or eight units at one point. And these were just all little side things that people, you know, who'd move away, they'd still have a house or something, or um, somehow someone would get a hold of me and they'd say, hey, or, hey, would you manage this for me? Because I've got renters, but I'm not there and I can't fix, you know, a broken faucet. Can you ha- help me out? And so I would. And I had generally two types of renters. If it, you know, just very broadly, I had renters that invested and really liked where they were living, and then I had renters who didn't. And the ones who didn't, one of the most frustrating things that happened for me regularly was every summer you start turning that air conditioning on and you have to change out the air filter. It's not, this is not rocket science. We're talking about taking a piece of cardboard out, throwing it away, and putting another piece of cardboard with mesh and filters in it. It's not hard. You do it once a month. I will, I will call you. I will set a reminder on my phone to call you to do it. It's not hard. These things are like 99 cents. And inevitably, I had some tenants who would not do it. They would not do it. And so the AC would start overworking. It would freeze up. It would break, and it would cost the owner several hundred dollars. Now, for me, no big deal because I didn't own it. It wasn't hurting me. But it was frustrating that, like, for 99 cents, you could have saved this person hundreds of dollars. Why wouldn't they do it? Why wouldn't they just invest the 99 cents and just put in that new air filter? Those same folks were the ones who tended to complain about everything. The neighborhood, um, you know, the mailbox got run over by someone. I mean, all these things that are legitimate things to fix or whatever, but they just always had that attitude of negativity. And then I had other set of tenants. And I remember this one particular guy, he was awesome. He would call me when something broke. And then he'd say, do you mind if I fix it, though? Never had a tenant like him before or after. The greatest tenant, like, in the history of my entire experience of managing property. He would fix things on his own, but just wanted to let me know, wanted to get my permission ahead of time. And it was never laid on rent, always took care of the air filter. It was like, ah. So this guy was great. 
what was the difference? Some t- people had the mentality, I'm out of here as fast as possible. I don't care about this place. This is just a stopping ground before I get to the place I really want to be in. So they didn't take care of the place they were living. And then there were others who wanted to make it a home. They planned on being there for a while. They, they cared about the relationship they had with me or the landlord. And they invested. They took care of things. They, they, I'd come over and I'd see fresh mulch on the ground and, you know, little, little potted plants. And they invested. It was a rental. They weren't buying it. But they still had a sense of ownership. They still took something and made it their own, and they invested. For us, we need to put off the complaining or or the things that we don't like about the city. And for some of us, we like Jeff City, so I'm not even talking to you. But for some of us, and, and myself included, I had to learn to like Columbia before I started liking Columbia. And enough so that we even moved more into the heart of mid-Missouri. We've got to put off a mentality that we're going to just get out of here as fast as possible. We need to get to know our city. We need to visit the restaurants. We need to visit the coffee shops. And some people are shaking their head. Yeah. There's some good restaurants. There's actually a lot of good restaurants in this city for this size, just FYI. You, not all cities have nice restaurants. Um, we, we need to get to know our neighbors. Like, actually get to know our neighbors, like, their names. And I know, right, we can all say, like, oh, I'm really bad with names. They live right ac- next to you, like, or right across the street from you. You see them all the time. You probably even get their mail accidentally. Get to know who your neighbors are. Have a neighborhood barbecue, right? Invest in the people around you. That's investing in the city. That's caring about the city we're in. So to this point, We've seen God has called us to be where we're at, and he calls us to plant roots where we're at. But I also want us to see this. He intends for us to bless the city we are in. God intends for us to bless the city we are in. Look at verses seven, or verse 7 with me. He says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In its welfare, you will find your welfare. By calling the Jewish exiles to care about the city they were in, Babylon, God is blessing the Jews. He's also blessing the the Babylonians, but he's blessing the Jews. He's also showing he has not abandoned them, that he still intends good for them, that he intends to bless them. He says, care about the city you are in. Seek its best. The word that he uses for welfare is a word uh, in Hebrew, shalom. Okay, shalom has this idea, um, it means peace or or wellness or wholeness, okay? And so, in fact, even today um, on on the Sabbath, which Jewish folks celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday, if you're going around, you say, they say, Shabbat shalom. So peace to you on the Sabbath is the idea. They, They want flourishing for you. So you say, Shabbat Shalom. And God wants these Jewish exiles to care deeply about the, the wellness, the wholeness, the peace, the flourishing of Babylon, the city they are in. It's a Gentile city. It's a city that just conquered them, right? It's not going to be a natural instinct to care about the people who just captured them. And he's saying, care about them. Care about the city you're in. For in its 
wholeness and its wellness, you are blessed. The city that we live in, Karis, should be better because we're here. The city, Jefferson City, should be better off because Karis Church is here, because you, being a part of Karis Church, are here in it. We should invest in the city by taking care of it, right? Make it your home. Care about it. Care about how it's treated. Take ownership of the city you're in. If your engine light comes on in your car, you own a car, and, and most of you own a car, and if that light comes on, you drive on over to O'Reilly's or Napa or wherever, and you have them plug in the computer, and you try to figure out what's wrong with it. Usually you ask them what it's going to cost, and if it's reasonable, you take care of it right then and there. But if not, you save up, and you get it taken care of. You try to make sure it's going to continue to work. If it's a rental car, you drop the keys off at Enterprise, and you just ask for a new car. Hey, engine light came on. I need a replacement. No big deal. When you own something, when you care about something, when you've invested in something, you give more to it. Caring for our city, caring for the welfare of our city means we give of ourselves rather than just keeping to ourselves. You hear that? We give of ourselves rather than just keeping to ourselves, even though that may be more convenient, that may be easier. It means we also need to know the needs of our city. We need to actually know what are some of the needs in our city. If we're going to take care of it, we need to know what's wrong with it. We need to know, and not to complain, but to care and take care of. So here's a few. We know, even in a city that's as well taken care of as Jefferson City, there's still poverty. There's still low income. There's lower performing schools than others. So that's why cars serves in events like our back to school fair we just had right and where we gave out like backpacks to like 400 kids and we were partnering with organizations giving out meals and shoes and all of that happening that's why we do that you're like why does the church do that aren't you guys just doing bible studies and stuff hanging out why are you doing stuff like that because we care about the welfare of our city so we we partner with events like that what are some of the other needs in our city we all know, and we've talked about this many times, there's a, there's a history and, and still a strong undercurrent of racism in our city. So that's why CARS partners with churches like SOMA, and we do panel discussions on how the gospel speaks into the issue of racism. Well, we did that last February at Lincoln's campus. That's why we have prayer nights with them where we pray and ask God and call upon him to bring change in both our hearts and in the hearts of the people in our city. We see issues here of drugs, fatherlessness, kids in foster care. It ought not be, but it is. That's why we serve, right, with the Central Missouri Foster and Adoptive Agency. We do those YMCA events where we take care of foster kids for a few hours, once a month or so. And we just hang out with them, and we eat pizza with them, and we play with them, and we get to know them. We just show love to them. We're kind to them, caring for the needs in our city. We know loneliness is a unique problem in our city, which seems weird because it's been here forever, right? And, and it's been around for like 150 years, and someone who's got you know, certain last names have been here for like generations. They've been here a long time. But one of the problems with that is they're not necessarily reaching out to new folk. And so new folks feel lonely. 
because they don't have a history of friendships. They don't have a list of people that they, they, they just already know. And they know that person's cousin and cousin. cousin. They don't have that. I don't bring that up to bash the city. I say that's a need in our city, and so we need to reach out. The vast majority of us in this church are not from here. If you are not from Jefferson City originally, raise your hand. That's all but like one person. That's all of us, basically. Someone at some point, right, reached out to you and invited you into community or for a meal, or got to know you somehow. That happened. And so we keep doing that. We don't stop. We don't quit now that we have community because we realize there's a loneliness here for others. So how relevant is a passage like this, written to a group of people who've been displaced from their home, to us who are, the vast majority, displaced from our original home? It's very relevant. Some of you made it to Jeff City against your desire. Some of you are here because you chose to be, and you like it. And regardless of that, this was not your home originally. It was not your natural instinct to care for the city, to plant roots, to seek to bless the city. But that's our calling. And so now living in that calling to both bless the city and care about it and to plant roots, I want to tell you there's going to be a challenge for you. There's going to be a challenge. As you seek to engage the culture, you're going to be pulled a couple directions. Okay? One is you're going to be pulled in this one direction to avoid the culture. Just like the false prophets were telling the the Jewish exiles, you know, we're going to get out of here pretty quick. There's going to be uh, some of us a tendency to want to, like, not engage the city. Just to keep to ourselves. There's going to be others that are going to challenge us to dive deep into the culture. Maybe even to become so much like it that we're kind of assimilated to it. And we don't look any different than the culture. And so we live in this tension as Christians who are called to bless the city to not let ourselves avoid it and not let ourselves be assimilated by it. So what's in the middle? What's the third option? It's this. We are called to contextualize the gospel in the culture we're in. So if that's a new term for you, I want to help you understand it a little bit. But it's basically this idea. We need to hold firmly the gospel truths we believe in while engaging the culture. We need to hold firmly the truths we believe in while engaging the culture. Tim Keller, um, pastor, author, he he writes a lot of really helpful stuff on this idea. And so I've got a couple things I want to show you. He says this. Sound or healthy contextualization means translating and adapting the communication and ministry of the gospel to a particular culture without compromising the essence and particulars of the gospel itself. Let me read that again. Sound contextualization means translating and adapting the communication and ministry of the gospel to a particular culture without compromising the essence and particulars of the gospel itself. So let me explain this. Let's say you're in a helicopter, okay? 
and somehow this helicopter has a huge fuel tank. And we, drive, we fly all the way over to Africa, and, and we just kind of get parachute dropped into some little village in Africa. What's one of the first things we're going to do? Shout it out. What are we going to do? We, what's it? Learn the language. First thing you've got to do is you've got to learn the language. And this may sound funny to you, but we kind of have to learn the Jeff City language. What do people mean when they say certain words? What do they mean? Certain people have different ways they were brought up or different experiences, and they mean different things. I have a coworker. She's always dropping these Midwest phrases that I've never heard of. Anybody ever hear of a hoopty? I did not know what that was. It's just like a beater car, but I'd never heard that word before I came here. She's always laughing at me for not knowing her vocabulary. But you would learn the language. You'd learn how people speak. You'd learn how they think. You'd learn what matters to those people. And you'd build relationships with those people. And as you've gotten to know the culture, then you can speak to them the gospel in a way that makes sense to them. But you don't change the gospel. Keller goes on to write this. He says, a contextualized gospel, the con- basically a gospel that's translated into the context we're in, the city we're in, is marked by clarity and attractiveness. Clarity and attractiveness. Yet it is still, yeah, I'm sorry, yet it still challenges sinners' self-sufficiency and calls them to repentance. The gospel essence, it doesn't change. But we begin to explain when we understand the city and the, that we're in and the cultural idols here. We begin to explain to them how the gospel transforms those issues. If racism is a key issue here, the gospel begins to transform that issue and challenge that issue. In L.A., where, yes, that's still relevant, but it's much more diversified, and so it's not as prevalent of an issue at times, it might be other issues, like generosity. In a world, in a city where everybody's go, 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 and they don't care about one another, the gospel speaks kindness and generosity and and building relationships and hospitality. The gospel is going to speak to different places in different ways. But the essence of it does not change. That's what our missional communities are all about. That's why we gather, and and each missional community has a unique mission and a unique way of serving the city. Because we're called to care for the city. We're called to bless the city we're in. Right now... um, We have one missional community that their mission is to reach out to internationals. Why? Well, because in a city that's predominantly white or black or Midwest or whatever, internationals are kind of, there's not a lot of things for them. There's not a lot of reaching out to them. They're kind of a fringe culture or um, not part of the norm. And so we we have an MC that seeks to love them, seeks to bless them. We have another MC that seeks to focus on very busy people, people who maybe are in the pursuit of the American dream or um, just exhausting themselves or working hard for some reason or another and explains how the gospel brings rest and real peace and real joy and hope. And we have an MC, another missional community that seeks to raise up new leaders and plant new missional communities because the gospel needs to go to all parts of the city. And it needs to speak to all sorts of groups and all sorts of neighborhoods in our city. 
each of those missional communities is trying to clearly communicate the gospel without sacrificing the essence of it at the same time serving and loving the city in practical ways. So in this sense, we move towards the city, avoiding being assimilated by it. We engage the people around us. We build relationships. We invite people into community with us so they can hear the gospel. And we don't abandon our beliefs. The tension of engaging the culture without being assimilated by it while still holding firmly to the gospel is, is, is a hard one. And we have to embrace that tension because the gospel is the only hope that heals the hurts of this city. So all those issues that I brought up, all those different things and many others that I didn't even bring up, that is the only real hope. And so if we don't actually go to the city with that message, there is no change. There is no blessing for the city. The last thing I want us to see again is also in verse 7. Let me reread that one more time. Seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. In, I'm sorry, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We are called to pray for the city. Now that may just kind of seem like an application point if we're called to bless the city, certainly praying for the city. But I wanted to separate it in, for this reason. Um, praying for the city, it means that we, we don't just discuss the idea of praying for the city. It's not theoretical. We actually begin to care about the people we're um, living or next to. It can certainly mean praying for people um, who are hurting. It certainly can be praying for political leaders um, in our government. But it also can mean when someone actually shares something that hurts them, that they're struggling with, we stop and offer to pray for them there. Rather than promising to pray for them later, we can just stop and pray for them right there in the moment of their request. So when we have hurts in this family, in this church family, we w- sometimes we stop and we just pray. But when people are in your life, in your city, in your neighborhood are hurting, it speaks volumes to say, do you mind if I pray for you right now about that? And so we don't always do this um, in our gatherings, but I want to do that right now. I want to take time to pray for our city right now. So what we're going to do is we're going to take some time, and just from where you're at, we're just going to pray for things. If you know of people in the city who are hurting, if you just know of general needs in our city that need prayer, I just want you to pray. I just want you to call out to God and ask him to heal those things, to bring um, the gospel to those issues, to bring us into those issues. So maybe if I can just get someone to start and then we'll just keep going until, until it seems like we're done.